Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. We're on case 14. Yes, uh, Nam Chuan kills, the, kills a cat. <coughs> so uh, would you like to, to start out by reading it? Certainly. Okay. <laughs> um, Master Nam Quan saw that the monks from the Eastern and Western quarter cat. So he held it up and said, if any of you can say something about it, you save the cat. If you cannot say anything, it will be killed. No one in the assembly could reply. So Nantuan killed the cat. That evening. No, Dr. no, that's as far. Oh, I'm sorry. There's another page. Okay. <laughs> yes, there's, there's more. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> That evening, Zhao Zhou returned from a trip outside the monastery. Nanchuan recounted the story to him. Zhao Zhou then took off his sandals, put them on top of his head, and walked out. Nanchuan said, if you had been there, the cat would have been saved. Okay, let's sit for five minutes. Does every does everyone have the uh, book? Yeah, okay. I do. I won't share then. Oh, you guys are all muted. Can you un there? Trouty, could you read the, the koan and then Wu Men's comment? Sure. Nanquan kills a cat. Master Nanquan saw that the monks from the eastern and western quarters were arguing over a cat. So he held it up and said, If any of you can say something about it, you save the cat. If you cannot say anything, it will be killed. No one in the assembly could reply, so Nankwan killed the cat. That evening, Zhao Zhu returned from a trip outside the monastery. Nankwan recounted the story to him. Zhao Zhu then took off his sandals, put them on top of his head, and walked out. Nankwan said, if you had been there, the cat would have been saved. Woman's comment. Now tell me, when Zhao Zhu put his sandals on top of his head, what did he mean? If you can utter a turning word here and now, then you will see Nang Kwan did not carry out the imperative in vain. 
otherwise danger. If Zhao Zhu had been there, he would have carried out the imperative in reverse. He would have snatched the knife away and Nanquan would be begging for his life. <laughs> okay. So now we sit for five minutes again. Okay, well, right for five minutes, our first impression. Okay, so now we'll <clears throat> read the koan, one paragraph, I mean, the Gu's comment. A paragraph at a time. So I guess it would be Gail's, Gail's next. Okay. <clears throat> Guabu's comment. You know that not killing is the first of the five precepts in Buddhism. The second precept is not stealing. The third is no sexual misconduct. For monastics, it's no sexual conduct. The fourth is not lying or deceiving others. The fifth one is no alcohol or addictive drugs. Moreover, it is against the monastic precepts to own an animal, much less dis dispute about cats. Owning animals is considered uncompassionate. So from the very start, even before the monks were arguing about the cat, they have already erred. Owning animals is not compassionate because animals should be free. They should not be restrained for one's own pleasure. Some people may say, I love pets. Yes, you love pets, but what does this have to do with the animal? I'm not advocating not having pets. When I was in college living in Chinatown above a temple, we had a very nice cat, as well as mice and rats that freely roamed. The cat would simply look at them as if to say, how are you guys doing? Irrespective of temple rules about holding animals, many temples had them. Owning and not owning a cat is not the issue here. Neither is killing and not killing. Okay. <clears throat> I think oh. you're next, Kim. Buddhist monasteries are typically divided in two, the Eastern and Western quarters. <coughs> One day, monks from these two quarters were arguing about the ownership of the temple cat. 
Perhaps the temple had an infestation of mice or other rodents, so each quarter wanted the cat. Nan Quan seized the opportunity. He grabbed the cat, raised it, and said to the monks, since you are arguing, if you can say something, the cat will be spared. Otherwise, it will be killed. Nan Quan Puyan was the teacher of Zhao Zhou, who is figured in this present case. We have already met both men in case seven. Allow me to give a few more details about Nan Quan. With his parents' permission, Nan Quan left home at age 10 to become a monk. A novice for many years, he studied the scriptures in the Vinaya Code of Discipline until he received full ordination. He was a highly learned master who studied the Avatamsaka Sutra as well as the Madhyamaka teachings on emptiness but eventually gave it all up to practice with Chan Master Masu Daoyi. After his awakening at about age 38, a couple of years before Matsu passed away, he went to Mount Nanquan to deepen his practice. He remained there for 30 years without leaving his hut. It was only later when practitioners found out about him and sought him out to teach that he began to do so. He always taught his students to go beyond grasping and rejecting. This case is no different. Nelda, you're you're muted. Thank you. Uh -huh. You may think of this story as a teaching about ethics or eating, even a teaching about letting go. If you think along these lines, puzzled about why Nanquan would do this, then you are going about it the wrong way. The cat would already be dead. All of these stories or gongons, including this particular one, were one where one may question whether Nanquan actually killed a cat or not, are methods of practice. Gongons present something quite relevant to your own lives. So you cannot think of them from an intellectual point, such as in this case, what the cat or the killing represent or worse, what the ethical teaching is here. Some Zen teachers say that the cat represents Buddha nature. Therefore they comment on Buddha nature. For instance, that it cannot be killed. Other teachers will focus on the cutting itself instead of on the cat. For example, Dogen comments, one cut, one piece. Usually when we cut something in half, it becomes two pieces. How can it still be one piece? Does it mean it's not cut? Dogen sets up another gongon for you to ponder. I disagree with all of them. This case is not about ethics nor is it about attachments. So what is it about? Please do not stir up wandering thoughts, conceptualizing in your head, thinking, if it's not about A and not about B, how about C? If you think about this case in this way, it will lead you further away from the significance of this story. I 
think it's you, Trouty. And you're muted. Yeah. I think it's probably Gail, no? Uh, uh, you go before um, Gail, because we're okay. going first names. They go what? By first names. Okay. Um, some Zen teachers, that's where we are. No, the next one. Uh, I disagree. I think we already had that. that I disagree. Isn't it true? Yeah. Isn't it true that in each moment of your life, you tend to make decisions based on yes or no, right or wrong? killing or giving life. In doing so, you become bound by your experiences, your knowledge, or worse, you simply go with your feelings at the moment. Nankwan, in holding up the cat, was not holding it himself. He was not holding it up, asking people about Buddha nature. He was not going to kill or not kill. In that moment, he was reenacting a real life scenario of each moment of your life, each moment of your decisions. Whenever you make a decision to do something, whenever you make a choice, what do you rely on? That is how to examine this case. If there is anything you rely on, you have killed the cat. If you are relying on anything, you are killing the person you are interacting with, the task you are doing, or whatever situation you find yourself in. With no hesitation, Nanquan shows you how to live your life. The key to practice is twofold, not to rely on anything and not to seek anything. This is not to say that you become stoic or inactive or that you practice some Taoist philosophical notion of non-action. In life, you rely on your knowledge to work, to relate with other people, to help those around you, to help your cat. But most people in the process of using their past experiences and their knowledge are not really using them. They are simply enslaved by them enslaved by right and wrong, good and bad, benefit or harm. Uh, again, I'm not promoting the idea that concepts and experiences are useless or that feelings are useless. However, you should know that in order to truly use them, you have to be free from them. The slightest reliance on them leads to bondage. The slightest seeking pushes whatever you seek further and further away. If you don't understand these principles, then Nanquan would have carried out the imperative in vain. And as Wu Men said, your life would be in danger. <coughs> Why? You need only to examine the way you live your life to know. Are you free? Do you feel a sense of lack? How do you respond to those around you, to family and friends, to situations? How do you respond from the depth of your being without reliance, without seeking? That's the task of the practitioner, to live your life from that, 
<coughs> level is truly difficult. That is why this is a difficult gong to realize. You have to know the ins and outs of all the mechanisms, the patterns of thoughts and feelings through which you operate. Through which, which you navigate in daily life. Just reflect on how you feel when you meet a new person. Automatically, <coughs> your mind churns. You are compartmentalizing, categorizing. This is a good person. This is a bad person. You are categorizing or judging that person by the way he is dressed or by the way she looks. Based on what? What are you relying on for those these judgments? If you are relying on your experiences, feelings, intuitions, then you are killing the cat. You are killing the person you are with and the situation you find yourself in. This is the scenario of your life. How sad is that? <clears throat> you filter the whole world in this way and kill everything in sight. How can anything live? So first you must expose your habits of killing. You first have to turn on the light in the room of your heart. Discover just how thorough this pattern is through which you process everything moment to moment. If you're not careful, not only do you put yourself in danger, you also place others in great peril. Aren't you always putting those closest to you in danger in difficult <clears throat> situations? If Nanquan were here today, perhaps he would not hold up a cat, especially not in front of the animal rights people. But he would hold up a knife to the dearest person in your life and ask, say something or else I will cut him or her in two. How would you respond? How would you respond without relying and seeking? Or perhaps you would hold up something that you love, such as your car, your treasure, your bank book, your new 4G cell phone, and say, say something or else I will cut it in two. Compassion, love, and generosity must be part of your practice. But ultimately, you must face that single moment the realization of the true meaning of these teachings. What are true compassion, love, and generosity? Why can't we realize them in our lives? What are the steps to overcome the difficulties we have? The way to integrate Buddha Dharma in your life is to engage with what I call the four-step program of facing, embracing, responding, and then finally, letting go of all problems. All of the Buddhist teachings encourage you to face your problems. Once you can face them, you have to embrace them. Then respond to them and eventually let them go. There are many Buddhist teachings that show you how to cultivate these four steps appropriately in life. If you're angry, you meditate on loving kindness. If you're covetous, you meditate on generosity. These teachings are there to help you. For example, to transform you first from a neurotic person to a normal person. Once you become a normal person, 
you who can face problems, embrace them, respond to them, then you should be able to let go of whatever problems you have. To be able to let go of them is to be truly compassionate, loving, and generous. But you have to go through these steps in this order. Otherwise, whatever you do may just be worsening the problem. The fact is, whatever you cannot let go of will become a source of pain for you and others. This is death. If you cannot let go of those you love, if you try to possess them, you will unintentionally harm them. But if you can let go, then you can truly love. Without self-interest, self-referentiality, this is to give life. It's me. There is no fixed amount of time you need in order to go through the four stages of facing, embracing, responding, and then finally letting go in order to live the life of wisdom and compassion. All four stages can happen in, that, in an instant. This points, sorry, the point is to see yourself and your actions in daily life Clearly, you must first be able to turn the light around. All scenarios that come your way are opportunities for you to save the cat. If you can save the cat, then it's all good. If you can't, you'd be better practice. You'd better practice. And practice doesn't mean patching gold leaf on a smelly, filthy toilet to make the outside look good. Some people are all about being Zen on the outside. No, nor is it about becoming compulsive about cleaning the smelly toilet. Some people engage in practice like there is no tomorrow. They take vexations as real. As long as you do that, vexations will always bind you practice is also not about denying the toilet. People of this type always mouth emptiness and non-duality, proclaiming that life is like an illusion, a fabrication of the mind. All talk, no practice. As for Zazo's response in this story, putting a pair of sandals on his head, that's a good one. What would you do if you were there? Remember that it is Zazo's, Zazo's answer, not yours. Nowadays, practitioners read a lot of books about Chan masters shouting, hitting, and acting in strange ways. So in response, they sometimes do that too. Please don't do that. Walk your own path. Don't shout or hit anything. Be careful. Don't put yourself and others in danger. It's you, Kim. Wilman, in his compassion, presents us with a verse. If Sao Zhou had been there, he would have been, 
he would have carried out this imperative in reverse. He would have snatched the knife away and Nanquan would be begging for his life. Maybe Zhao Zhou should have threatened Nanquan's life to give him a taste of the knife and see how he would respond. If you ask me, knowing <coughs> Zhao Zhou, had he been there, he would not have been carrying the imperative in reverse. What's the use? A simple cut would do. That in itself would be sufficient to make Nanquan beg for his life. Don't let your mind churn again with questions like, what does that mean? Just investigate this deeply. Who is the cutter? Where is the cat? At the tip of the blade, may you bring all to life. Okay. So I guess with the remaining amount of time, we'll, we'll discuss um, who, what, how do you pronounce his name? Guo Gu, commentary or affirm his initial impression. What in your life is illuminated by this co-op? It made me wonder when I read the koan, I was putting myself in the place of the, um, the monks, you know, they've been arguing over the cat. Mm. And I was trying to think of um, why nobody said anything when they were asked the question. And um, it made me think about how I, I'm always searching for the right answer for something <laughs> without paying uh, real close attention to what's actually going on in me. I mean, um, some of them must have been kind of in shock or, you know, but yet nobody said anything. Nobody said, hey, stop, or, you know, no, or, you know, something like that. You know, it's, um, you know, uh, maybe in denial that maybe their master would cut a cat if this was really, you know, happening or would kill a cat if this was some sort of joke and, you know, what they might have felt if it actually, he'd actually did kill the cat in front of them. Um, so all those things were going through my mind, but it was, what it was making me th think of was how many times I don't say anything because I'm afraid I'm going to have a wrong answer to something. <laughs> I don't know it just made me kind of go down that um, you know I'm too caught up with um, some idea of myself as somebody that needs to have the right answer or might look foolish 
and I'm not really paying attention um, to that part of me. You know, just, um, you know, trying to pretend like it isn't there must have been um, sometimes, you know, feeling it's better not to say anything. Yeah. I have a few thoughts. One is just the parallel with this and the Republicans who, who haven't been speaking up in the last four years. But well. the other is just the sentence construction of you can say something about it. And what's it? You saved the cat. The normal way of writing this would be if you any of you can say something about the cat or about the argument. But it is kind of ambiguous, isn't it? And then and then I'm thinking of the book you have, you know, you have to say something and how important that is, even though none of this stuff can be translated in words. Something I had read about a long time ago was that the um, putting the shoes on top of the head was a symbol of grieving. Mm. But he doesn't mention that. But um, Gail, you had heard that too? I think I did hear that once. And yeah. when you say that, it sounds familiar and it also sounds like it would make sense. Yeah. And that was a statement that Zhao made that he, he was sorry for the cat. But he, there were no words, you know, he's, the, the thing is, you know, say something. So that to me implies words and Jojo's uh, response wasn't even words, so. And his sorrow was from the way I read it, likely more than just for the cat. Yeah. Well, in the, in the last um, one, we see that the, the, the monk doesn't um, want to, he's scolded because he comes late or early to break, to lunch. Oh, yeah. And the abbot. rather than saying something, he just acts, mm -hmm. which is to leave. So there's a parallel with, with that one. That's what I thought too, Kim. That's one of the first things that came to mind was last week's koan. And if there was a connection. There always is. Um, the, the, like one, two, three, four, they're, they're, they come in pairs. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. So well, well, well seen that you saw the connection. <laughs> Well, I couldn't do anything with it, but I did see it. <laughs> You're halfway there. <laughs> but you know, I had, it was interesting when um, Gogo asked in the commentary, in his commentary about when we speak about something, where is that coming from? And before I heard somebody read the next sentence. My thought was, comes from my experience. Just That's like right. you were saying, Gail, comes yeah. yet, comes from what I've said in the past, what I know in the past, what I, it's not, doesn't have anything to do with the present. It's our and conditioning. So it, it's yes. Our conditioning. Yes. So it was very helpful to hear that and recognize, oh, I'm living out of my conditioning. Yeah. 
And I, I really like when he talked about those four principles. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Yeah. And the first one oh, is facing. So to me, that's like, that's when you notice that you're having a, a response, a reaction to some event or person or thing. And then embrace, and then embracing, then responding or letting a response happen, and then finally letting it go. Um, I was trying to put that in context with all this as well, but that's um, that's part of what we learn, um, as he mentioned in our in our practice, is to you know uh, uh, notice everything that's arising. And then not to reject it or, or to, um, you know, push it away. Right. And then um, kind of allowing a natural response to arise and then let go. Um, yeah. Funny the relationship between this story and, um, is it, who, who's the king? Is it King Midas who, who uh, cuts the baby, says he, he'll cut, no, he's got to Solomon. Solomon. Yeah, so everyone knows that story, right? Sure. The, the mother, oh, the mother, the two women argue about whose baby it is. So they bring it to Solomon and Solomon says, well, here's what I'll do. I'll cut the baby in half. And so the real mother says, oh no, the other woman can have it. So then Solomon knows who the real mother is. Oh, uh-huh. Interesting. Sometimes it's hard for me to figure out who the cat is um, in, a, in a situation. Sometimes there are um, very present cats, and then sometimes there are hidden or invisible cats. And I'm not talking about my egoic self cats. I'm, I'm talking about coming to a decision. Um, even if I go through those four steps where I ask who's the cat and what's the harm and then what's the harm, what's the collateral harm to those around this person or persons. And I've got a decision like that. I'm delighted that we read this koan for so that I can sit with it tonight after we're done and come to that decision because um, there are several cats involved. I'm always struck by uh, these koans. We talked about words. Uh, it usually isn't a, a, a response with words. It's usually a, um, an action or um, some sort of movement, you know, that's kind of expressing maybe um, an emotion or, a, or something that's happening. You know, um, I mean, maybe bursting into tears, you know, <laughs> at the thought of a cat, you know, it, it, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't know. It just seems like they're not asking for you to figure it out. They're just asking these koans for you to be right smack in the moment and um, be with whatever's happening in that particular situation. Um, yeah. So Trouty is 
Is there any symbolism to the I, to the eastern and western quarters, like the north and south, to the east and west? Do you think there's any meaning there? Well, in general, there would be a preference for east, but I do not know whether in the monastery like this. Well, um, I mean, could, could it be a metaphor for the eastern and western parts of China? I doubt. Okay. I doubt that. It's uh, according to, um, let's say, the constellations or understanding, yeah, where the sun comes up. In most religions, that's, that's the preferable place. Whatever, if you do some invocations or your prayers or your meditation, rather than to the West. And of course, uh, I know a little bit more about it in, in India than in China. But since lots of this stuff has been brought to China, so the Eastern Western division of the temple may have been influenced by that, but I'm shooting from my hip. But I like the shoes on the head of, of the um, priest because shoes are considered, uh, well, polluting. And so putting it on one's head, uh, that's definitely something that is not done. <laughs> It's an unusual gesture. Maybe you will not see it again. <laughs> <laughs> or hear about it. <laughs> well, I have to recall that I think it was Shunryu uh, Suzuki Roshi. He befriended, I think, uh, uh, or uh, English woman uh, befriended him at some point. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know what the occasion was anymore, but she put some shoes on the altar. Oh. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think the reaction was, but I, I don't remember now what, what he did, but eventually he, expla he explained to her that she cannot do that. <laughs> I, I have to tell you that, I mean, that just amazes me because there was a time at an intensive when early in my, maybe not so early, maybe about five years ago. And I was, um, we were getting ready to say the chance maybe before we broke for lunch or something. And I scooted my cushion with my foot mm. and Flint just about had a cow. <laughs> he he came over and he said you don't move the cushion with your foot <laughs> and I was like okay okay 
he, and then he backed up. He said, he said, I'm not upset. He said, I just want you to understand that that is not done. It is a, it is a sign of disrespect. That is the Buddha's seat. So, so when you talk about someone putting their shoes on the altar, I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> but then on man's head. Yeah. Yes. Now to me, I'm, so I'm curious, Trouty, do you know anything about that? Is that a sign of, of grieving? I, I don't recall it if I heard it. This is from I Rochester. Just, oh, go on. I just found something on it from Rochester okay. Zen Center. It says, um, in that act of putting the shoe on the head, he was bringing all those dead monks alive. And we must also see that act one and act two go together. What is necessary for that first act is acquire ultimate meaning in Joshua's, he's called Joshu here, which I think is the other. Yes. Name, no, name no that's correct pronunciation. Well, it's the Japanese version of Jojo. He would say, is like the drama of Jesus being betrayed by Judas. Without having been betrayed by Judas, Jesus never could have been resurrected. And the drama of Christ, as I understand it, is his death and resurrection. So that's all it says about the shoes. But Okay, so how does that, I understand the deal about Judas need to, needed to betray Christ in order for Christ to be resurrected. But how do the shoes on top of the head bring the dead back to life. That's not, that's not the same thing, but it is, I don't know whether I can say parallel. Um, it was an action that was absolutely unexpected for the assembly there. Uh, in a way, you would have expected that maybe there will be a, a sigh or, or some kind of a sound which hasn't been expressed. It is like when somebody gives you a question um, within the koan or at the end of the koan, and the other person will answer, I'm not saying. Mm. It doesn't have direct reference to something. It is a gesture, just like, uh, I think, what was it Gail who was talking? Yeah, some action or some something that is not verbal, that is not a construct. Something that is visible and can be interpreted probably in several ways but still it has an effect of um, sort of extreme astonishment at least. Yeah, I, you know, Stephanie's story was also, you know, about the cushion and everything. Then it was bringing me back to the monks being quizzed by the teacher and not wanting to say, you know, like being almost afraid.
afraid of making a mistake. I mean, that's kind of how I felt when I went to Zen. It felt like that, that there were right ways and wrong ways of doing things. That's what I felt. Mm. And, you know, and if you, you know, you know, move the cushion with your foot or put the shoe on the altar or, you know, maybe your steps were a little too big going around, you know, in Kinhin. And, you know, some people were slow and some people were fast. And, you know, you had a coughing fit in the middle of Zazen, you know, it all felt very kind of precarious to me. And I think that's where, you know, my own conditioning was going with this. It was like, why were those monks so quiet? Were they afraid actually to, you know, to, to be, have an to answer be, for the teacher? You know, afraid they might say the wrong thing and then he kills the cat anyway because they couldn't say anything. You know, it was just, um, you know, it kind of, it kind of, um, you know, brought that up to me. And that's why, Kim, when you just said, um, it had to do with uh, the shoes on the head had to do with bringing, you know, bringing people back to life or bringing the monks back to life. It's like they were frozen, mm. unable to access their, you know, their, their own emotions about what's happening, you know, and, and, um, you know, like, like you're dead, like you're not really noticing what's going on here, you know? I don't, know um, not, I don't know if that's making any sense. Oh, so not, really, you're yeah. taking that as not literally dead, but dead in terms of not feeling. De Dead's in, in terms of being almost, you know, uh, frozen, you know, afraid to act, not, you know, um, you know, because you wonder, There's a, they're all sitting there and nobody has an answer. <laughs> Howdy, I'm trying to understand your explanation a little better and what came to mind. And I don't know where I heard this story. And I don't know if it's a true story or not. But along these lines of doing something that is so not within the expected is a story about um, some Nazi soldiers leading some of the prisoners to the gas chambers. And one of the men in line decided that he was going to just speak out and he did and he started laughing and patting the the other prisoners do you remember the story yeah. on the back yeah. and dealing with it as a celebration to the point where the guards were finally thrown out of their trans so to speak and started getting emotionally connected with that celebration and got to the point of realizing what they were doing and couldn't do it and marched them back to the to their barracks or their sleeping places because the trance had been broken. Is that similar to the unexpected of shoes on the head that would break that trance of whatever it was? Mm -hmm. Shock? Yeah, or... that, yeah that's interesting. Yeah, well, that's, that's how I think one is used and, and works, yes. I like how he was in a, it was a different moment after the cat was killed. And so he was responding to that moment, not going back to what we would do is go back to that first thing. Well, what I would have said was this or that, <laughs> but that wasn't the situation anymore. Now you have this cat that had been, been sadly killed. And so he responded to that. I, I like that part of it. Yeah, it was more in the moment. 
also it took it went from the relative to the absolute which all the cones koans kind of do in the any any like verbal answer would have been still sticking to the relative would have been just not upping the ante kind of thing but the shoes did that Mm -hmm. So I have a question probably for Donna or Lori. Uh, in this, you know, in this koan book that we're reading, are the koans in the order they're in for a certain reason? I don't know. Okay, Donna, what do you think? You're um, shaking your head yet. From what I've read, yes. I mean, this was, it, there's nothing random about it. Um, people who, um, I'm drawing a blank on, oh, Wu Men, of course. Wu Men was the one that put this together. He was, you know, uh, uh, considered one of the great teachers. And this is as um, Wu Go, Wu Gu keeps telling us, you know, this, it's about practice. It's about our life. That's what these are. They're as wonderful stories as they can be. You know, there's their, their medicine there to help mm -hmm. us. And so that's why, you know, the stories, you know, match or, you know, are related. And some, I've even noticed a time or two um, that it, it there may even be a certain circling back on some of these themes too. I, I don't, you know, this is really my first time reading these, so I don't know, but I, it, it certainly would make sense that there are elements that were, you know, in case 14 that harken back to maybe something in case three or four. Mm. Um, but I'd really do like his commentary. I've, I've got others that I've read, but his, his is so practice oriented. It's just fabulous. So, but yes, they're, they were put together very carefully and in order. Good to know. Thank you. Well, this is interesting. Traditionally, Nanshan and Joshu are said to each wield a sword. Nanshan, the sword that kills. Joshu, the sword that gives life. Nanshan's sword cuts through all thoughts, all dualism. Nothing is left. What is, what then? Joshu shows how we must respond from that place of no thought. It's not enough to empty our heads of dualistic thinking. We must act. So that's like what you were saying about putting the shoes on the head, it's acting instead of kind of reinforces that. Well, I think the whole awakening process is to kind of basically is, is um, an undoing of our conditioning. And then what's left is a natural arising or response to what's happening in a moment. That's true nature, right? And um, so I, I really do also, I, I, I kind of agree with uh, Donna here. I like the commentary because he keeps turning us back to um, 
just being um, aware of what's actually going on in the moment, you know, with maybe our thoughts or our emotions or, uh, you know, the, he says, turning the light back there, turning the light back, you know. Like Dogen. He seems to really care about our practice as opposed to trying to be brilliant about the koan. Yeah. And he says, walk your own path. <laughs> you know, um, don't try to come up with an answer just because, you know, you heard some Zen master, you know, do something quirky or weird. And, um, you know, so I, I, you know, I really like that. It's just really all about being present and not being in your head. This is a very timely um, koan for me. I've been in my head all day. <laughs> Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's a slap in the face. You know, face it, embrace it, respond, and let it go. A teaching for every day. Things like Thanksgiving can keep us in our heads because there's all those stories that are attached to it. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I'm, de I'm delighted for this practice and for, and for you and for the Sangha um, because it really helped me um, be in the moment and, and go through the day moment by moment with gratitude for what was in that moment. It was so thank you. Yeah, yeah you know, Nelda, I can relate. I had all kinds of uh, stories about why my extended family couldn't be together and how disappointing it was. And my sons-in-law did, both of them decided to do little trips at Thanksgiving with the boys and not be around. and. You know, and then it was just my two daughters and I, and, you know, it just, you know, I, I had all these stories about the way Thanksgiving should be and the way it wasn't. And uh, <laughs> <I suffered> <laughs> yeah, so finally I just had to let it all go. And when I did, I actually had a really nice day. So, <laughs> but it's uh, pretty much everything we do all day long has, you know, um, a narration going in the background. That's what I found. My story is I'm alone. Yeah, <laughs> I am physically. And I, that was the first thing I, I wrote. I, I decided I would start and end the day. I kept my phone by me so that as I was going through the day, um, if a thing uh, came up that I was grateful for, I, I dictated it immediately. So so um, that was lovely because my story is I'm alone, but I'm not alone. I have all these amazing people around me who were checking in. It just wasn't the same as the B 
big family meal, you know, but it was, it, it was lovely. One of the things I was most grateful for that I hadn't really been present with before is that I decided Thanksgiving would be day, a doggy spa day. I'm not, ta- I'm not taking them to the groomers. So they're getting lousy haircuts and nail trims for me, <laughs> but I was so grateful for my little grooming tools that cut the time and their stress and mine a little more. And it was like, Oh, I'm so thankful for this. I'm so thankful. <laughs> yeah. So good day. That's lovely, Nelda. <laughs> We've been kind of ending at eight fifteen. Is this a good time? I think so. Do you do anything? You just sign off, or do you do um, wave? <laughs> wave and bow. Wave and bow. You don't do any chant. Okay. I'm glad everybody. It was great to see you all today. Good to see everybody. Good to see you. Thank you. Good to be with you all. Thank you Thank for your you. presence. Thank you. Thank you. you. I've learned so much from you guys. Thank you. Thank See you, you. Monday. See Take you Monday. care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.